Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A note of warning. In this episode, we speak about death, but not as therapists. So if you're living closely to death right now, yours or someone else's, this podcast may not be for you at this particular moment. Otherwise, welcome to That Which Carries, the Halloween special, Death, a Biography. If the rule you follow brought you to this, of what use was the rule? Those words were spoken by the Coen brothers' protagonist Anton Chigurh to the man he was about to kill in the cult film No Country for Old Men. But Leo Tolstoy said at first when he wrote, Is there any meaning in your life that the inevitable death awaiting you does not destroy? Welcome to the final episode for the Honest Citizen series of our podcast and our Halloween special. This episode is a little different in that it's theological storytelling, and as such it gets both more metaphorical and more metaphysical than our previous episodes. But I hope you will see that it is also both deeply grounded in our reality and deeply grounding for us honest citizens. We've talked in the club about how COVID is the sort of thing that triggers a scarcity mindset in us, that leads us to grab for the things that we need or want at the expense of others, to be shittisans. But in this episode, we're looking at perhaps the most shittisan act of grabbing, the grab for meaning. This year has forced us typically cushioned Westerners to face up to death, to acknowledge our shared identity as those who die. A friend of ours lost three people to COVID just within his workplace, two from the virus and one through a depression that was triggered during lockdown. COVID has torn through our death avoidance strategies and constructs. So in this episode, we're going to get to know death a bit more. In the lyrics of Matthew Hook, we're going to put its face up to our face so we can see without flinching. This episode is a biography of death and meaning, which I hope to show you are biographies that can't easily be told apart from each other. We begin with the very birth of death and follow its life, observe its heyday, and then watch to its final demise. But as we do so, and those of you who've listened to my last episode will know that we go on a bit of a journey to get to the point, but as we do, we begin to see a satirical expression Death, even heavy, stern death, turns out to be its own satire. Ultimately, it calls BS on itself and leads us away from itself to something else. The biography between the lines of this biography of death is of course our own. If we are those who die, then the biography of death lies very close to our own. The birth of death, or at least the birth of our death, 
features in the very poetically charged narratives of the first pages of the Bible, not long after the origin or birth story of the whole cosmos is told. God sculpts and breathes life into the first humans in the newly formed Garden of Eden. Now in this story, Adam and Eve function at least as symbolic representatives of all of us. And Eden also represents the world and all its inbuilt abundant provision. Oxygen, feasting, space, sex, laughing, canoes, whiskey, crickets, dance, time and light. The garden was a place of abundance. Everything we needed to live without any lack or shame or misery was available to us. Best of all, God was there, living with us, taking evening walks with us. But in this verdant garden, full of every kind of fruit, there was just one fruit tree that God warned us would give birth to death if we ate it. And there it was, the formula for death to come into existence, the breeding process for giving birth to death revealed. The tree was named the tree of self-made meaning, and to eat from it would mean that you got to fire God as God and hire yourself to be your own little God, and with that you got to try and make and decide your own meaning in life. God's warning though was that if you fire the one who gave you life and sustains your existence in every moment thereafter, the obvious result is that you will die. But as we all know, Adam and Eve went on Facebook instead and read some fake news conspiracy theory that God was full of shit and probably just scaremongering us against eating that fruit so he could microchip us and make our lives miserable. So they took the fruit and ate it. They didn't die straight away, but they did catch death. They were now terminally ill with a genetic death that we've all inherited from them since then and still haven't found a cure for. I don't know if you've noticed so far in the story, but as death was born and took to the stage, it entered our lives with a sour, dramatic irony. Because the forbidden fruit gave us humans the freedom to fire God and make our own meaning of life. But without God, it now means we'll die, just as he warned. But do you sense the irony? It's the irony that the Coen brothers and Tolstoy wrote about. That the birth of death brings with it the death of meaning. The very act of selecting self-made meaning made meaning impossible. You can't have meaning, self-made or otherwise, if you're dead. And we are now all death waiting to happen. We're mortals, those defined by death. As the Coen brothers wrote, if the meaning you constructed for yourself led you inevitably to your death, of what purpose was the meaning? This film and other works like it have their origins in history. Their ideas are not new because there's nothing new under the sun. Their idea traces back thousands of years ago to a philosopher who wrote under the pseudonym Koheleth and who, interestingly, is also famous for first penning the words there is nothing new under the sun. So it kind of seems fitting that so many of us are still ripping off his ideas today. Koheleth, which mostly means the teacher, writes a poetic essay about logos, which is the ancient Greek word for meaning, and the Greeks at this time were obsessed with discussing what the logos or meaning of life was. But Koheleth's essay makes the unpopular case for life being completely meaningless, having no logos. But before we travel back in time to Koheleth's ancient words, 
It's good for us, first of all, to know a couple of things about this guy. Firstly, he's not some guy who thinks life is meaningless just because his life happens to be a bit shit. He's someone who we know had a great deal of social capital. He prevailed in all the categories of life that were valued and rewarded in his society. He was a winner, a success story. So we can't just discard him as a sore loser. It would be like if Beyonce suddenly announced that life was meaningless. You'd not be like, well, yeah, sure, for you maybe. Secondly, even though he wrote as a Jew within the Jewish tradition, he's not saying that life is meaningless if you don't believe in God's existence. He's saying that life is meaningless if you live as though you are God with your own constructed meaning. If you do so as a believer living as though God did not exist, or you do so as a non-believer because you think God does not exist, either way it's meaningless. So without God there's no real meaning. But here's the thing. Living without God is a problem for both believers and non-believers. Theists are just as likely to live without God as atheists. The only difference is that the theists are hypocrites. Okay, so he systematically examines his whole life in each of its categories. His education and knowledge, his career and achievements, his image and his impact on the world. And he resolves that life is utterly meaningless under the sun. By saying under the sun, he's indicating the remit of what he can speak about. That everything he argues relates to the observable reality that we live in. Our careers are meaningless because nothing we do under the sun is properly original. All our work is just varying degrees of derivation from other people or from God's original work even computer technology today. But there's also no real control over what the legacy of our work will be, if any. And even if our work does last, no one will remember us for it. He's right, if you have children, think about them. One day, if humanity survives long enough, they might have grandchildren to whom you will be their great-grandparent. Think about how unlikely it is that they will even know your name, still less anything about what you've accomplished or how good-looking you were, or how popular you were. But the deepest cut is probably not until he assesses that even our motivations for work, even good work, are essentially just the overflow of an envious, raging competitiveness that stems from our feeling of lacking something. That our careers, if we're privileged enough to have one, are basically just a form of compensation compensating for what we feel is lacking in ourselves compared to others. It's an overflow of our scarcity mentality, which lay at the heart of the FOMO of Adam and Eve eating that forbidden fruit. We've been talking about this the whole way through the Honor Citizen Club, that psychosocial state of believing that we are not enough and that we don't have enough, which drives all our violence and competitiveness with each other and that so often plays out in our vocational lives. So rather than work being the peaceful, natural overflow of our gifts and passions in generosity towards the world, it's often more like war against our weakness and sense of inadequacy in competition with the world. So for me, I can apply it like this. There's something I feel is deficient in me that led me to start fair. Fair is probably just a derivative of something else or a combination of various things already done. 
Everything I do, this podcast, our artworks, may impact a few people or no one. And even if it does, for how long until somebody else comes along and does fur better than we do? Fur then shuts down and I have a crisis of identity and value. I hate myself and whoever that someone else is who's doing it better than me, I die. And then whatever remains of my work in terms of legacy will be discredited, forgotten, copied or overturned. And that's just my story. God, it hurt even just to say all of that. And also a note to our first sponsors. Um, this is true, but it's also not the end of the story. So please stay with me a while. For Kohelet, all this competition is morally meaningless because what gain is there for any one individual or society generally when we're all just aggressively competing with each other? It's also practically meaningless as he's observed that nothing we do is really under our control, nothing lasts, and even if it does, we won't be remembered for it. And it's also kind of pretentious because trying to live as though we're above the ordinary cycles of life that are naturally repetitious and where who we are and what we do doesn't last is sort of deluded and arrogant. So your work is meaningless. It's unable to create your identity or give you real agency in the world and does nothing to prevent your inevitable death. Same goes for your wisdom, which, unless you're Plato, almost no one will really follow. Look how many people and countries don't even listen to David Attenborough's wisdom. Nor does wisdom give you real control over life. Walter White was wise enough not to smoke, but he still got lung cancer. Life is random and out of our control. And same goes for pleasure. It never really satisfies. We always want more, and so we become miserable, which is the opposite of pleasure. But perhaps worse than all of that for Koheleth is that in life there is no justice, because the last thing that happens is only death. Not judgment or justice or reckoning, just death. Ask the parents of a murdered child if even the execution of the perpetrator makes them feel that things are fair again. There is no real justice in this life. Nothing ever changes. Nothing is in our control. Nothing ever really satisfies and nothing will be remembered. And so this is his conclusion. The absolute uncertainty within life and yet the absolute certainty of death renders life meaningless. The word he uses for this meaninglessness is vapor, something that barely lasts and even while it does we can't grasp it. But he also notes that strangely, with all this anxiety and dissatisfaction, we struggle with an unshiftable desire for life to go on. We have this desire for eternity set in our hearts. This psychological tension of realizing that life has no meaning and yet being unable to let go of our sentimental attachment to it is captured in an old joke that Woody Allen tells. Two elderly women are at a Catskill mountain resort and one of them says, boy, the food at this place is really terrible. And the other one says, yeah, I know, in such small portions. Well, that's essentially how we feel about life, full of loneliness and misery and suffering and unhappiness. And it's all over much too quickly. If all of this sounds a little bit on the nose so far, Koheleth is actually quite nuanced 
Because in this poetic essay, he's not saying that these things like work and education and pleasure are bad, just that they drive us nuts when we ascribe meaning to them beyond what they can really give us. When instead of just being what they are, work to occupy and provide for us, education to equip us, food and drink to nourish, enjoy and bring us together, instead we make them crawl on all fours trying to prop up the constructs we place on them to become the very meaning of our lives. At this point in the story, I'm thinking of that age-old question. If you could invite any three people from history to a dinner party, who would you invite? I suspect that Koheleth and his life is meaningless mantra wouldn't make anyone's list. But I think that people have mistaken him for a killjoy. This is the guy who truly knows how to party, because he isn't trying to turn the party into a construct for his identity and meaning. He's just letting it be a party. This is a guy who knows how to really enjoy a meal, because he's not trying to turn that meal into a construct for his identity and meaning. He's just letting it be a meal. And this is the guy that is both your ideal employee and boss. A guy who knows how to value and do the job well, because he's not trying to turn that job into a construct for his identity and meaning. Anyway, Koheleth hems us in at every turn, Because he also goes on to say that you can't just get out of this meaninglessness by leaning into it and living as though life were meaningless and then turning into a happy nihilist. Because that too is a form of self-made meaning leading to death and therefore meaninglessness. So work is meaningless, but to give up on it is also meaningless. Being wise is meaningless, but being an idiot is worse. Pleasure is meaningless but being unable to enjoy what we have is also meaningless. We are all the while being forced to acknowledge the failure of these things that we construct meaning from, yet being held back from either living in denial of meaninglessness or leaning into it. Because what both of these approaches to life have in common is that the very process they take of trying to resolve the problem of meaninglessness is just further actions in the same direction that got us into the problem in the first place. That is, they are attempts to name meaning for ourselves. And you can't solve the problem of a meaninglessness that comes from the attempt at self-made meaning through more self-made meaning. It just all leads to death. But that's exactly what we've been doing ever since Koheleth penned his essay. Here's just four examples of constructed meanings that we've come up with that end in death. Firstly, the construct of the body hierarchy that Sonia Renee Taylor is famous for critiquing. She describes it as the fictional ladder that we're all trying to climb to the top of, but as we do, we endorse its myriad injustices. Racism against bodies of colour, sizism against larger bodies, ableism against disabled bodies, ageism against old bodies, Things that lead to race riots, eating disorders, marginalization, and neglect. Secondly, the construct of meritocracy that Michael Sandel is famous for critiquing. The fictional idea that those who have, have so because they deserve it, and those who don't because they deserve not to. An idea that leads to the humiliation of the poor, ensconcing them in poverty, lowering life expectancy, and accelerating death. Thirdly, the construct of likes and follows that big tech defectors like Tristan Harris 
are famous for critiquing. An idea that our value is constructed and sustained, and crucially, all too easily deconstructed and destroyed by how many likes and follows we have on social media. An idea that has led to a devastating rise in youth mental health problems and suicide rates. And fourthly, the construct of capitalism that many people are famous for critiquing. The idea that our value is constructed and sustained, and thereby all too easily deconstructed and destroyed, by how much we are acquiring and consuming, that has led us to consume the planet and its resources, pollute its oceans, and set us on a course to create an uninhabitable world. If all of this sounds depressing, it's because we're only halfway through the biography of death. Death is approaching its prime time. In the words of Jack Donaghy, death is reaganing. It's in its peak productive, or shall we say destructive, years. But now, instead of reflecting on what Koheleth says about death and meaninglessness, we'll talk about what it is that Koheleth won't say, and what it is that he cannot say. We're turning now to the point in the biography of death, where Koheleth himself dies and can no longer be death's historian. But as we continue to put the face of death up to our face, we will first of all observe death's magnum opus, its greatest show. And then, as we look, we begin to see how death becomes its own satire, until finally we observe the death of death itself. This is a story of two halves, and we're now entering the second half. So in its heyday, death has successfully made all of our attempts at meaning utter failures. Because that is exactly what death does. It destroys everything. And because it does so indiscriminately, the smart ones and the idiots, the achievers and the non-achievers, the pretty and the ugly, the influencers and the obscures, it destroys the possibility for meaning in any of these things themselves. But here's the twist. Death also plays a role in alerting us to itself so that we might turn away from it. Death, when we put its face up to our face, screams to us, look out, there's no meaning. In the first half of its life, death is the arrogant I told you so consequence of our grab for self-made meaning. But in the second half of its life, Death also becomes the voice, the signal to us that hollers back through time to us, from the future moment of our own individual deaths, to the moment we are alive, to say, look out, there's no meaning. It says, look at where everything you do ends up. It all leads to me. And none of it, because of its lack of certainty, control, justice or permanence, is able to either reveal or generate any meaning for you. So there is no meaning under the sun. But then Koheleth, true to his word, himself dies under the sun. And what we're left with is the implied question, Tolstoy's question. What lies above the sun then? Is there any meaning there that cannot be destroyed by the inevitable death that awaits us? We need this question because without questions, 
it's hard to properly receive answers. And this is what holding death's face up to our face gives us, the gift of the question that we need more than the constructs we have. So in this story, Koheleth, a writer for the Old Testament publication, is now dead. And some time later, a new publication opens, imaginatively titled as the New Testament. And it opens by introducing the birth of its protagonist, Jesus. And it introduces him with these words. In the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was meaning. He was with God. And then he came to earth and we beheld his glory. Meaning that exists beyond the sun came down under the sun. A tense opener for sure. Because by now the reader knows that death and meaning cannot coexist in the same space, in the same realm. So what happened? To answer this, we must first go back briefly to that crucial moment in the Garden of Eden, to what it was that was said about the forbidden fruit. It was said of it that it was tempting, that it would hold out the promise of making us happy, making us memorable, and giving us power and control. But we're already familiar with these things because these are the things that Koheleth has said ultimately elude us. But they are key drivers for us, the ways in which we've sought to make meaning and significance on our own. Then Jesus, who comes of age about a few hundred years after Koheleth, right at the very beginning of his vocational life, was tempted with all of these same things by Satan who we now see is like an oily salesman traveling through history selling the same knockoff goods to each new generation. Right on cue, he sidles up to Jesus in the desert, flicks open his trench coat, dusts off his merch, and offers Jesus all the same shit. 100,000 YouTube subscribers, a summer body, a waterfront villa, and a feature in Time magazine, if he will just bite that piece of fruit. But Jesus, in singular exemption to the entire rest of humanity, says no. He declines the offer to find his meaning and significance through these things. I don't know if you've noticed, but just as death enters the stage with a sour irony, Jesus enters the stage with his own brand of dramatic irony. Here's the twist. If Jesus was the first one in history to resist the metaphorical bite, if he was the first one to turn down the fruit that leads to death, Wouldn't the rest of his story also be unrecognizably different to ours? Wouldn't it be free from all the suffering and shit that we're dealing with? And wouldn't he have his own private experience of happy and uninterrupted living? But although Jesus had kept himself untethered to all this death-inducing, self-made meaning stuff and said no to the metaphorical fruit from Satan, he did say yes to something else, to a cup of wine from God. This metaphorical cup of wine that he metaphorically drank symbolizes what he said yes to, which was the call from God to experience, to take upon himself the full manifestation of the self-made meanings of others and to experience what they might choose to do to him in a state of total submission to their constructed meanings. Instead of the unfettered bliss of a uniquely meaningful and eternal life, Jesus selected to live out the fullest experience of what our meaningless life under the sun can be, 
He chose to go ahead of humanity, to journey literally and metaphorically to the very end of all self-made meanings, to the global headquarters of death, but to be taken there not by consequence, but by his choice of love. The full meaninglessness of life within our self-made meaning constructs had its great exhibition in the suffering and death of Jesus and gave to death its greatest show, the spectacle of death, the chance to flex its strength and show its glory. Death was able in Jesus' body to exhibit its full power to showcase its greatest work. Jesus' broken body becomes the performance site for death itself. We can see modern performance art pieces that can help us to understand this. Leading performance artists Marina Abramovich and Yoko Ono both performed pieces in galleries where they sat motionless and quiet before their viewers and fully submitted themselves to any treatment of them from the audience. Their bodies became the exhibition sites for the desires and motivations of humanity. By the end of these performances, Yoko Ono had had her clothes cut off of her and Abramovich had had her throat cut, blood sucked out of it, and eventually a loaded gun pressed to her head. This was the 70s after all. But despite being the most prolific and famous performance artist since the term first came to use, Abramovich herself laments that she's unable to perform beyond death, and she seems to be always trying to. But after three days of hell... Jesus did what neither Koheleth, Abramovich, or any of us have been able to do. He took over the exhibition, stole it from death, and performed his own work by coming back from death to life, carrying the ashes of death itself, proclaiming that death itself was now dead. Death, which on its own had made meaning impossible for us, was now dead. Jesus had torn through our death and meaninglessness, and thrown open the curtains of history to give us a view of how it all ends, of the ending beyond death that Koheleth could have had no idea of. Our biological death is now viewed like a dead star, still visible to us, still impacting our lives. But when we travel towards it and put its face up to our face, we see that its biography ended years ago that death becomes its own satire, the death of death. The final word of both the Old and New Testament publications together comes to us through a man named John, who was imprisoned on the Greek island of Patmos, which, as it turns out, is the ideal travel location if you want to experience a vision of the heavenly super-solar realms, five stars on TripAdvisor. Because John, while he was there, had the greatest mystical experience a vision of the final assembly of everyone and everything together at the end of time. There, in the final cosmic gathering, there is a note. It's the denouement. It's the last page of the book. But it's been ripped out of the story and sealed up. And as everyone knows, the end of a story is what casts the final meaning of everything that happens before it. Whether it turns out to have been a tragedy or has a final upward turn towards comedic joy. But all of us are dead now. The genetic death we caught from our self-made meanings has killed us all off, and dead people can't read. 
But in this mystic vision, Jesus emerges as the only one who traveled back from death with the ashes of death, alive and able to break the seal and read the note, to answer Tolstoy's question before the cosmic assembly. Despite this being the red carpet moment of all time, Jesus arrives not clad with all the bling of constructed meaning, not in a 4x4 wearing a power suit and flanked by an entourage. But instead the text says he appeared alone, with all the power and glam of a broken body, but one that is alive. And he breaks the seal and the silence with these words. Death is dead and meaning has come, but it has come neither as concept or construct, but as a person and personable. Meaning has come, not as an idea to grasp, but a hand to clasp. Nothing meant anything, now everything means everything. Death, it turns out, is not the last word, and there is a meaning beyond death. But instead of that casting our ordinary lives under the sun, with hoovers and Zoom calls and bedtimes, into irrelevance, it does the opposite. Now everything that shares even just a little in the nature of the meaning that exists beyond death, which is love, can participate in that meaning and be grafted into it. Everything Christ-like will be like Christ and will live beyond death. Whether it's what we do, what we say, the relationships we have, whether it's weeding the garden, leading an acquisition, enduring the grief, doing the accounts, administering vaccines, launching a Christian arts charity, sharing the credit, turning up on time, or biting your tongue. It doesn't matter what it is. If there's any trace of this same love that defeats death, it is meaningful and has a share in an eternal legacy. We discover what the author of the ancient version of Fifty Shades of Grey wrote thousands of years ago that there is a love that is stronger than death. But to really value the truth that there is a love that is stronger than death, you first need to know how strong death is, or was, to put its face up to your face so you can see. I said at the beginning that we are largely people cushioned from death, but the truth is that no one is. We don't have less death than any other culture, we just tend to relate to it more dysfunctionally where the sacred experience of dying with others, not just living with them, has been removed and privatized. But that doesn't mean that death is not the subject of our lives. It totally is, perhaps more so than other cultures. It's just that it's subliminal. In the words of Jane Austen, it's all the while implied but never stated by predatory capitalist marketers designed to fuel death-based anxiety in order to have us keep purchasing the promised goods that will give us eternal life whether they're transhumanist technologies, a jet ski or just a Boots face cream. But none of these things have proof of concept. They do not deliver because they do not understand the strength of death, nor hold the ashes of death in their shiny hands. We need a perceptible, not subliminal death discourse. We need rituals for grieving, not denying death. And we need to embrace our sacred duty to die alongside each other. We need to recover Halloween, a ritual that was born out of Jesus' return from death with its ashes in his hands, that gave us all permission to laugh at death, 
and the discovery that death is ultimately its own satire, that it's not the end of the matter. We've come to the end of the Honor Citizen series, but right back at the very beginning of the club, at the beginning of the UK's first lockdown, the first thing we made for our club members was an audio meditation for them to listen to daily. It's a recording of a vision that was written using hypnotic language and set to hypnotic music. The narrative takes the listener through an imaginary garden, verdant and luscious, spacious and generous. The kind of place for feasting, sex, laughing, canoes, whiskey, crickets, dance, time and light, and all the permitted fruits that God first gave us. It's inspired by the idea of what it might feel like for us to be Adam and Eve, since they have always represented us anyway. But for us to be Adam and Eve, if they had not made a grab for the forbidden fruit out of a scarcity mindset, but instead remained in the garden, experiencing the abundance of the many, many other fruits that God had given them. Like all hypnotic writing, it's designed to nudge us away from some things and towards others. In this case, we're being nudged away from the scarcity mindset that drove them and drives us to snatch and grab and enviously compete and turn into citizens because we believe that we're not enough and that we don't have enough. And we're being nudged towards an abundance mindset from which we can peacefully share who we are and what we have with others. Is there any meaning in your life that the inevitable death awaiting you does not destroy? The answer is absolutely no, there is not. But meaning is determined by the end of things, and the end is not death anymore. All constructs of meaning end in death, but it turns out so does death itself. Life and meaning that exist beyond the sun, beyond the walls of this world, are now in the world and under the sun. And we can, with Jesus and like Jesus, come back from death carrying the ashes of death itself. We can reverse the story in Eden and let go of that which we made a deathly grab for. We can let go of all our self-made meaning constructs. But find as we do that we're not left empty-handed. Hands full, not of the stuff we grasp, but of a hand we clasp. Hands full. Thanks for listening. That Which Carries is the podcast of Fur. We are a collaborative artist creating new experiences of Christ-based living through contemporary art, ritual designs, and pop culture artifacts. You can hear and download the audio meditation I mentioned at the Honest Shitterson page on our website, furproduction.com, where you can see all our other projects. If you like what we do, consider joining our small group of founding patrons. Their support currently covers half of our monthly costs, so with your help, we'll be able to continue to do this work. For all our latest, follow us on Instagram at Fur Production or Twitter, Fur underscore Production. This episode includes original music by Fur. Fur. 
Christ-based living through the arts. Christ-based living valued as art.